0: This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW.
1: All right, time for us on this holiday Monday to check in with Rob Shaw, of course, political correspondent with Check News and much more. He joins us. Good morning, Rob.
2: Good morning, Simi.
1: I'm a little sad this morning.
2: I know why you're sad. I I know why you're sad, but tell me.
1: Well, Lieutenant Uhura passed away. Nichelle Nichols. And, you know, my family, big, big Star Trek fans. She was one of the reasons why, because they were a family, you know, immigrant family in the late 1960s. I mean, they'd arrived in the 50s, but it was amazing to them. My mom always used to tell me about being able to watch her on Star Trek. And that was one of the reasons why they became such big sci-fi fans is because they saw somebody who kind of looked like them on TV.
2: I mean, her influence uh, can't be understated. I was reading her uh, obituary in the New York Times, which had a, a fascinating anecdote I'd never heard before, where she was... Martin Luther she actually King? Quit, Is this the Martin yeah, Luther King? Yes. Actually, she actually quit the show after the first of three seasons, and it was Martin Luther King who convinced her to uh, stay, saying that uh, she was just too important, you know, a figure of uh, civil rights at the time in the 1960s. and. To, to walk away from a job like that. And she did stay. I, I thought it was a fascinating story. There was some great obituaries written about her in, in the last day or so.
1: Oh, there really were. I watched a video of her actually talking about that story, about the first time she met Martin Luther King. And this was after she had kind of marched for civil rights and all of that. And then she gets to meet her idol. And he says to her, no, 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 you don't understand. My family, my children, you, we are your number one fans and how blown away she was by that, but for the same reason, right? Like, back then, you didn't see somebody uh, who looked different kind of on on a TV show, and that was a huge thing. So, so sad that she passed away.
2: And we also, I mean, it was a TV show, but she did so much work throughout her life for NASA, helping to kind of recruit female and minority candidates that uh, there's generations of people who were inspired by Star Trek to get into space exploration and science and uh that's a pretty good legacy to leave as well
1: it is pretty good i knew you'd appreciate this so i knew we could talk about this this morning yeah Uh, there's a lot of other stuff for us to talk about too and you know these stories about our healthcare system and where we're at rob they shouldn't surprise me anymore but they do because the lengths that some people are going to to get a doctor like why is this newspaper ad making so much news right now
2: well, it's actually kind of um I guess a kind of heartbreaking ad that was in The Times columnist here in Victoria on Saturday by uh, a, a senior citizen who took out an ad in the newspaper saying, "Help, I need urgent help for my eighty two year old husband's prescriptions. uh he needs help getting them renewed. We would pay any reasonable fee. Our family doctor retired at Christmas. There's no walk in clinics available, and even the virtual appointments." Uh, are going to take months. And this ad in the paper was kind of, I I think, an example of the extreme stress and fear and anxiety out there from people who can't get a family doctor, can't access uh, a walk-in clinic, can't get into the system. Uh, And for an 82-year-old needing prescriptions, uh, and his wife, who's uh, Janet Mort, who's actually a recipient of the Order of B.C., uh, and a, a well-known um, advocate in, of uh, helping kids with underprivileged socioeconomic backgrounds uh, become literate, uh, it's, it's a very sad thing to see an ad in the newspaper uh, urgently pleading for a doctor.
1: I know. I couldn't believe it either when I was reading through it. And I thought, can you imagine how many p- places they must have phoned and and i don't understand how somehow someplace somewhere didn't say let me help you with that like what what is it what have we become when somebody didn't say no 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 we've got to do something about this
2: well there's so many gaps in the system right now we have the older family doctors retiring we have the existing walk-in clinics uh, and, uh closing due to the workload and costs we have new doctors who don't want to do Uh, family physician work because of the pay system uh, this fee for service pay and they want to run a business. Uh, And then we've got foreign trained doctors who can't get accredited here, takes too long. And then the government's urgent and primary care center solution, it just quite literally is not working. And so this all sort of conspires into this crisis for many people whose family doctor retires or quits uh, and have no access, no options to primary care Other than, uh, you know, going to the emergency room or appealing uh, in public like this for help, which is uh, which I think is the reality for a lot of people right now.
1: And it's so shocking to read it. And I have no doubt that now something will happen. But it's just so sad to think that this is this is the lengths that they had to go to to get attention for
2: this. For sure. And I mean, I look, I'm sure some politicians are going to jump in and try to solve this crisis, but I, you know, I've been covering BC politics now for 14 years, which is a drop in the bucket compared to Von Palmer. Uh, but <laughs> I have watched political parties exploit this issue for yes. that entire time. And I remember the BC liberals promising a family doctor for everyone who wanted one in 2010. They gave up on that in 2016 saying the, the only realistic future here. Is integrated teams where you have doctors and nurses and pharmacists and others working together. And then the NDP in 2017, John Horgan said, "No, no, no. You know the Liberals have failed to get you a doctor. Don't worry, we can get the job done." And their solution is urgent primary care centers with teams of people, nurses, nurses, doctors, and others getting together. I, and that has not worked. Uh, they're not staffed properly. They can't find doctors. They are not providing the care that a lot of people want that there, there hasn't even been a new medical school materialized in Surrey that the NDP had promised. I think politicians, this is like political catnip for them. They want to promise people yeah, based on their fear and their anxiety that they can solve this problem. And it is so big that it, I think the, the likelihood here is that it's not solvable. And you do hear that from the medical community, the era of solo family doctors is gone. And when your family physician retires uh, that model doesn't won't, be coming back. And the doctors will tell you this, the politicians will not, uh, including this current government, who will want you to believe that this is still a solvable problem in some way, but it's going to be a revolutionary uh, fix, I think, in in whatever comes up here.
1: Right, because it's not just BC facing this problem. Like, we are competing with every province in Canada for doctors. We are competing with the United States for doctors.
2: For sure, yeah. And that's why there's so much work going on behind the scenes to try and change our pay model. And I know it sounds... (laughs) not, I mean, it's hard to be sympathetic for if you're working for minimum wage out there at, at the pay scale of a doctor who's going to be earning hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they only get paid per visit in this fee for service model, as we call it 30 to 50 bucks. They get paid a little bit more for different things that they do. They come out of medical school with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and they have to run a business. They have to hire staff, they have to get rent, they have to do insurance. And that kind of hassle of not really earning very much compared to their peers who might go work in a hospital or might go work in a specialty area. That's caused new generations of family doctors not to get into it the same way that they uh, the generations before. And the government has to solve that problem with some type of either salary system or some incentive system It's tried. There were bonuses offered $25,000 signing bonuses in Victoria Uh, to new family doctors here. Nobody took the government up on it as of uh, a month ago. So, you know, the government's trying in its own way, but it's such a huge problem that has just um, occurred for so many years now that it's going to be very difficult for any government, despite their promises uh, to really reverse this in any time soon.
1: Isn't it interesting, though, how this, the the thinking has changed among doctors, you know, because 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the only thing doctors wanted was to run their own business. They wanted to go into business on their own and to have that autonomy. And now they don't because they're saying it's too much work. They want to just focus on the care. So it's, it really is. It's like a it's a total attitude shift. And the government has not shifted with them.
2: No, they haven't. And, and there's a lot of fear you hear from doctors in the current generation of whether they want to do this or not. And one of the sort of uh, reactions to the bonus program that was offered by the health minister was that some young doctors weren't sure they wanted to be locked in to the contract required to get this bonus. They wanted to perhaps go the route that they've traditionally gone with the locum program where they try different doctor's offices and different communities. And so, I mean, you have to listen to the very few people interested in becoming family doctors to help solve this too. And that's not, that's not easy as well. Uh, You know, I think this will continue to be a political football that we are going to hear kicked around in the next election. Uh, It is reflecting very poorly on this current government that it cannot uh, get a handle on this, but uh, the previous government couldn't either. And we'll hear all sorts of promises from the next one that this is a solvable problem, uh, but it certainly is not going to be solvable without an, astronomical amount of money uh and even then it's going to take years and years to coax people back in and even then we're not going to get what we had it will be something different for sure
1: in the meantime this story i know is going to be uh talked about a lot today so rob thank you so much
2: okay take care this is mornings with simi
1: You know, there have been some shocking shooting events over the past couple of weeks. I mean, just a few days ago, we were talking about what happened in Whistler. Two men gunned down in broad daylight right in Whistler Village. Well, this weekend, again, another shooting, this time at the South Surrey Athletic Park, an area that is, you know, frequented by kids and families and should be very busy on weekends, especially in the afternoon. But now we had a triple shooting there. Two men died as a result of that shooting and a third taken to hospital with life-threatening injuries. Now, the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team has taken over this investigation. They say they're working closely with Surrey RCMP and others, but we still haven't gotten an update on what has happened. They do believe the shooting is targeted, but quite frankly, that does not provide, I think, any consolation for people out there when these have become so common. Joining us now for more on this is Trevor Halford, the BC Liberal MLA for Surrey White Rock. Thanks for being here this morning.
3: Thanks for having me, Simi.
1: What did you think when you heard about this?
3: Oh, absolute shock. Um, you know, this is a facility, for those that aren't aware of, of where this is, is that this actually happened outside of... Uh, an indoor soccer facility, one that my, my eight year old daughter attends and, uh, one where I've coached at and, you know, and across the street from that is a splash pad. And so you can imagine the horror. And when I found out that there had been a shooting there, um, in one of the busiest days and, and people are out and about in that area. Um, I was just praying that, uh, you know, nobody was caught by, by crossfire and, uh, you know, I just, I shudder to think that, uh, what could happen next.
1: Now I know that area too, my kids played soccer there. How busy is that place normally at that time of day in the afternoon on a weekend? Uh,
3: Packed, uh, packed. In fact, you know, I always make the joke with my wife that we have to go early just to get parking, um, because it is, uh, it is packed. Now, fortunately that, that area looked like it was, uh, a little bit empty where the, the soccer Uh, Indoor soccer place was, but like I said, across the street you have uh, you have a splash pad, and you can imagine uh, how how busy that was on that day. Um, We also had Sea Festival, right? So we had a bunch of people in in into White Rock in that area, and then we had South Pole City right there. So you know, it it doesn't matter wherever this violence happens is inexcusable, but for the fact for it to happen in an area so populated with innocent people, with innocent children, is, to me, uh, absolutely unforgivable. And, you know, we have to really, really, you know, dig deep to make sure that we are doing everything level to make sure these incidents don't happen again.
1: There have been so many of them, it feels like, recently, that have been these shocking, brazen, we use those words, but does does it really convey, do you think, how the community feels? What are you hearing from people?
3: I'm hearing people are scared. And, you know, you should not have to think... Um, when you take your child to a soccer game or take them to a park to cool down, you should be thinking, well, yeah, they may fall off and they may hurt themselves or they may, you know, twist an ankle playing soccer. In the back of your mind, you should not worry about a shooting. That's not the society that we live in or want to live in. Uh, We have to to make sure that, you know, we're preparing our children for the best. But, uh, you know, when you're going to these places, uh, it, it doesn't enter your mind that there would be, uh, you know, what the police are calling a targeted hit. And I understand the police said that there was no, you know, further concern or, um, you know, to the public. But to me, you know, when you're when you're seeing this level of violence in our community, I, I think it's, it's definitely a concern.
1: That doesn't feel like any consolation anymore, is it? Like, I feel like people used to accept that when the police would say there's no public safety concerns at this time. But now when it's like Whistler and South Surrey Athletic Park and these very it could be anywhere and i don't think telling people it's a targeted hit off provides any comfort anymore
3: no i i appreciate the fact that you know we want to make sure that we're we're keeping people uh, at ease and and you know not trying to have people panic but at the same time uh, as a parent and, and you're a parent as well and or grandparents that take their kids out there you know you want to make sure that you're putting your kids in the best situation possible I'm sorry. But, you know, the fact is, is that I, I, I don't trust these people that are going out and doing these shootings that uh, that innocent life may one day not be claimed. Hmm, right. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think that they have that. Um, you know, I'm not going to give them that level of my trust as a parent or as a, as a leader in this community. I, I won't, will not do it. And the fact is, is that if, if they're bold enough to do this in an area like that, um, what's next?
1: Uh, That's what I wonder too. What needs to be done here? How how should we be responding to this? Do you think?
3: Well, I think we should be responding with with outrage, which I I think a lot of people are doing. Uh, You know, it's it's hard. There's not a lot of information on this particular case. I I think, unless I'm wrong, I think one statement's been put out, um, and I want to respect that. I I don't like I you know we don't know too much about this case, and so I'm not going to say that much about it. But the fact is that we are seeing this level of violence, like you said, in Whistler and other places. And um, it's, you know, it's one where we have to look at the, you know, the police and, and ask if they, if there's, if they need more resources. Um, we have to look at, you know, if these people are apprehended and, you know, what is, have they been charged before? Um, are they out on bail? Are they out on what are their conditions? Um, you know, so I think we have to look at it as a, as a case by case basis, but, you know, what I can say is that, you know, this is happening way too frequently in our communities and we need to make sure that we're giving law enforcement every tool necessary to combat it.
1: What other tools do you think we need at this point? Like, I know it starts early, right? It it starts with going into the schools, keeping kids occupied with something that doesn't offer them this kind of alluring idea of joining a gang, but we've been talking about that for years. Why aren't we making progress?
3: Well, we should be. And, you know, if you look at where that happened in South Surrey, Right? And if you look at it, it happened in, uh, in an area where there's football, there's baseball, there's soccer, and then right across the street is the is, uh, South Surrey uh, hockey arena. You know, getting involved in sports was a big one for me as a kid, and I knew kids that mm-hmm. were on my team that were susceptible to to, uh, to going down the wrong path, and they're saving grace to sports. Some of them made it, some of them didn't. Right. So that that to me is, you know, we have to make sure that we are working with our youth at an early age to give them every opportunity to get out of that lifestyle. And that to me is uh, and I'm not I, I don't know if this was gang affiliated or anything like that with this particular shooting. It looks like the previous ones were, but we have to make sure that we are we are investing in our youth to make sure that they have the support to, uh, to choose a different life.
1: Very true. Uh, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, there's a lot of different activity to talk about in regards to what police were doing on this long weekend. But in particular, we're going to talk about the Vancouver police right now, because we heard this story about the police officer who was attacked and it led to shots being fired. And as a result, now the Independent Investigations Office has been called out. So for more on that and how things went this past weekend, we're joined now by Constable Tanya Visitin, who's the media relations officer for the Vancouver Police Department. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Simi. Thanks for having me. Now, first off, let's talk about this. What happened to the officer? Are they okay? Yes.
4: So they did suffer some serious head injuries um, and were taken to hospital, but I believe
1: um, he is now recovering at home. Okay. And can you t- what can you tell us about the circumstances? What happened here?
4: Yeah. So I can't give too much details just because it, it is uh, now an IIO investigation. But what I can say is on Saturday morning, two officers were sitting in their patrol car near East Hastings in Columbia, um, when a man who was carrying a weapon approached the police car and struck one of the officers through an open window. So um, an officer did attempt to uh, stop the attack by deploying a taser, but the suspect was uh, eventually shot by police. The suspect was taken to hospital. He does remain in hospital uh, for his injuries. Uh, We can identify him now as John Corey McKay. He's 52 years old and he has been charged with one count of aggravated assault.
1: Okay, so there's more to come on that. But let me ask you this then. How how much of a concern, an increasing concern, has this become in the last year or so? Are officers seeing more aggressive activity on the streets, would you say?
4: So we've certainly seen an increase in um, street disorder and crime along East Hastings Street since the beginning of July. So over the past month, we have been talking about a number of incidences Um including one just recently that I talked about last week, about a woman in her 50s who was sitting on the street and she was lit, in, lit on fire earlier in the month. Um, we had a man in his wheelchair who was stabbed as he was trying to get through the tents and debris on the sidewalk. There was a woman in her 80s who was bear sprayed. Uh, a, woman, a 67-year-old woman was walking near Hastings and Carroll and she was struck in the head with a butcher knife. So this is all just in the past month. These are And these are just incidents that we know about because we know in that neighbourhood there may be a lot of unreported crime, as people you know are, are a bit sceptical to call police. But these incidents alone have just happened in the last month. So, yeah, it's definitely been an increase that we've been seeing and um, definitely concerning.
1: So what is being done about... What do you attribute that to? Like, what has changed down there that you think might have uh, allowed this to happen?
4: So, you know... The Vancouver Police didn't create this unsafe situation, but we're doing everything we can to protect residents from the violence. So this includes a few things. We have targeted patrols going on. We have um, not only do these targeted patrols happen, they also, uh, you know, deter violence, uh, enforce, you know, safety. We investigate crimes when they do happen, and we work with different um, levels of government that are responsible for addressing some of these social issues that are going on down there, like poverty, homelessness, addiction, mental illness. So um it's definitely not an ideal situation that's going on but we're doing everything on our part that we can to help keep that neighborhood safe
1: have you changed or increased anything about the type of policing then in that area
4: so you know that area has been an unsafe area for a while now it's been a very dangerous area over the years and it's definitely becoming more dangerous and now we're seeing a police officer you know attacked and so you know, obviously, there's a lot of issues that are going on. There's a lot of people that have been falling through the cracks there. So, you know, our officers are not out there trying to make life harder for people. We are. Our main responsibility is, of course, responding to crime and keeping people safe. So, we we have patrols in that area. We have our targeted enforcement, targeted projects going on. So, that's something we're doing on a on a regular basis.
1: And I know overall, it was probably a pretty busy weekend for the VPD already. Huge events going on in downtown Vancouver. Uh, Let's start with the Celebration of Light. How did that go?
4: Yeah, so on the flip side, we had some positive events that did happen. Um, You know, it's great to have uh, such a large event like the Celebration of Light happening after not having it for so long. So um, all in all, that went well. Of course, anytime you get a a large quantity of people together from parts of the Lower Mainland, there will be some minor disruptions. We're we're prepared for that. We had officers staffed. on all levels we had officers on foot bike our boats motorcycles so we were fully prepared for anything that would happen so just a few minor incidents um a few children that were you know temporarily um displaced from their family but they were reconnected and all in all it, it was a great uh, three nights
1: well that's pretty good when you consider we haven't done this in a long time um there yeah, might have been sure. some concerns about that and that for people sure. there was what are we talking about a couple hundred thousand people
4: yeah, I mean, I think the first night we saw the most, Wednesday night not, not as much, and then again a lot on the, the, the third night. So, yeah, I would say a couple hundred thousand people for sure.
1: Okay, impressive. And then with Pride yesterday, I know a lot of people in the downtown area too. It's been a whole weekend full of Pride events and everything has gone all right?
4: Yeah, another, another great positive day. So, yeah, we had officers in the area for that should uh, anything ar- arise, but it, it ended up being a, a
1: really good event. Okay, that's great to hear. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Why do we have such a lifeguard shortage? And most of the time, I think people wouldn't you know, think too much about this, except with the way the weather has been recently. Everybody wants to go to the pool and your hours at many pools are limited because of the lifeguard shortage. Take what happened at Kitts Pool over the weekend. It was finally set to reopen. It did reopen on the weekend. First time in months because of all the damage that was done during the high tide a couple of months ago. And it closed early because of a staff shortage not enough lifeguards so that is a concern and it's not just us here it is right across the country so how did we get to this point well joining us now is dale miller executive director of the life-saving society of bc dale thanks for being with us
5: good morning Simi. good to be with you
1: so when you hear about these lifeguard shortage stories do they surprise you
5: i know they don't uh, unfortunately and you're right it's it's not just here in vancouver or bc it's it's countrywide in fact a, a global issue and uh, a lot of it goes back to, of course, COVID. We had uh, two years plus that uh, pools were either not open or, or on a limited basis. So you've got an entire cohort of, of uh, potential lifeguards who were not able to access the training. So that's a big part of it. Also, we've seen, of course, in other work sectors as well, that um, there are people have just gone on to, to other jobs, uh, found other vocations, whatever it might be. So a lot of reasons for the shortage.
1: You know, when I was growing up and I thought this held for a lot of years, Dale, it was like quite coveted to be a lifeguard as your summer job, wasn't it?
5: Oh, absolutely. Not just summer job through the year as well. It got me through university and, and it's still very much a coveted job. And, and it's a great job for, for youth to get into. They learn such, uh, such good life skills, uh, first aid skills, emergency uh, training, and, uh, and just responsibility, sense of judgment and uh, self-confidence. And the shifts are are quite flexible and the pay is good. So I encourage any, any youth that are thinking of it to uh, get into the field.
1: How long will it take us, do you think, to get back to a level where we're comfortable with that? If we were closed for two years and people didn't get that training, how many more years will it take before we have enough lifeguards, do you think?
5: I think we're starting to see a change already. Uh, we're seeing overwhelming demand for the training courses right now. Uh, so, I'm thinking, you know, this, this fall and winter, I think we'll see this uh, situation remedied and, and a whole lot more lifeguards out there. So, but, you know, unfortunately, the uh, I mean, everybody's very happy that the kids' pool reopened, but uh, the park board had to be conscious of the lifeguard to patron ratio uh, that is the standard. And if they cannot meet that standard, they cannot be opened safely. So, those are the kinds of things that they need to consider.
1: Right. What is the standard then? What do we think is an acceptable level?
5: Well, it depends on the pool, really. And a kid's pool being as large as it is, uh, I'm not exactly sure what their ratio is. But an indoor pool with, with slides and whirlpools and, uh, and, and all kinds of other things, uh, the ratio would be a little different. So um, it's, a, it's something that's very pool-specific.
1: How long is the training? What does it take to become a lifeguard, Dell?
5: It's about uh, 100 hours. Uh, So you need to be taking some uh, life-saving training, which is the bronze medallion course. Uh, And then next is bronze cross. And we've recently changed bronze cross to be an assistant lifeguard designation. So that's meant, again, to to help with the uh, shortage of lifeguards out there and then a first aid course, and then the National Lifeguard course that would qualify you to become a lifeguard. So it does definitely take some training, but uh, these people on the pool decks are very well trained.
1: So is that something that once you've got it, you keep it, or how often do you have to kind of brush up on those skills?
5: No, you have to brush up every year on your CPR skills to make sure they're sharp, and in fact, every two years, there is what we call a recertification of the lifeguard skills too, just to make sure that... uh, they are ready in case something happens in the water.
1: You know what fascinates me about this, Dale, is just that I think we underestimated, in some cases, the cost of the, the cultural, the societal costs of what we were doing, like closing community pools for two years. Who, who could have anticipated that this would be the result down the line?
5: Exactly. And it's, it's such a balancing act be, between the, the large public demand to get those pools open and the employer's uh, concern for safety of the uh, swimmers and, and their employees as well, and making sure that, that everybody's safe.
1: All right. So how do we, what's the feeder situation like into lifeguarding? Does it start with kids with swimming lessons? Because I know even kids finding enough swimming lessons has been a challenge.
5: Yes, <clears throat> excuse me, that's true. And uh, we hope that with pools back open, that that will change too. Uh, But that's definitely the best feeder system is uh, kids learning to swim. And, you know, that will keep them safer around the water as well, but also hopefully get them into uh, being a lifeguard. And I know when I was a youth, it was just natural that you went from being a swim club uh, team member into becoming a lifeguard. So uh, we hope that that will be the case in the future. And uh, if people are interested, uh, youth can go to nationallifeguard.ca and that website will show them exactly what they need to do to become a lifeguard. And in fact, it has a link to the courses available in their community. So, we very much encourage youth to, and not just youth, we're actually, it's very, very heartwarming to see a lot of former lifeguards and instructors coming back into the field as well. So, hopefully, that'll help and we see this change in the next uh, six months to a year.
1: So, you definitely need all hands kind of on deck on this situation. What's the pay like for well said, lifeguards? Yes.
5: Yes, it's, it's always been very good. Now, certainly, uh, that gap has has narrowed because uh, other sectors have uh, needed to increase the hourly wage for their staff. Uh, but a 16-year-old lifeguard, uh, recently trained, can uh, easily be making upwards of $20 an hour. So it's a, it's a great job.
1: Hey, that's pretty good for a 16-, 17-year-old, right? That's a part-time job. I mean, you sound like you really enjoyed your lifeguarding years.
5: I did. Yeah, I mean you you learn so much, you make lots of friends and it's turned into a career for me and and can for many too. I mean there's many full-time career jobs at the pools and and within the recreation departments that are very fulfilling and um and very satisfying.
1: Okay, so then once again Dale, where can people go to get more information on becoming a lifeguard?
5: Nationallifeguard.ca is the, uh, the one site, but also lifesaving.bc.ca is the Lifesaving Society's website. So there's lots of information there as well. And we have an office in Burnaby, and we have great staff that can provide lots of information.
1: You know, at this time of year, though, I always remember as well that we hear about people drowning too, which makes me think that we all probably could serve to brush up just our water safety skills, not even if we want to become a lifeguard
5: absolutely and and unfortunately over the weekend there have been a, a couple of tragic drownings and uh, the more that uh, we can be trained in the skills that can help save people in the water the better we'll be
1: what are the simple things that we need to remember in those situations being near water like that
5: i think knowing the water you're going into is is very important uh, we had a situation on alouette river and uh, i believe that uh, you know an inflatable was involved there too we can't rely on those inflatables life jackets are definitely the the go to on the water whether you're boating or or even floating down a river so just those kinds of safety aspects and supervising children uh, whenever they're close to the water and also if something happens in the water not going into the water that that should not be the first reaction i know unfortunately it it is the instinct to do that, but take a moment, look around, see if there's something you can throw to somebody. Uh, Going into the water yourself, unfortunately, uh, can be tragic as well.
1: All right, Dale, thank you so much for that this morning.
5: You're welcome, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: How far would you go to find a family doctor? And you know what? A a few years ago, that might have been kind of a theoretical question. Unfortunately, that's not the case anymore. Because with the situation too many British Columbians find themselves in, it is increasingly an emergency situation. It's a desperate situation to find a family doctor. There's a story that you are going to be hearing a lot about today. And it's because of an ad that was placed in the Times columnist newspaper over the the weekend, and it was an ad for a couple, an elderly couple in their 80s who are desperate to find a family doctor just to fill the husband's prescription medications. Their family doctor retired back in December. Now, the ad said they've tried everything. They have tried going to family, you know, walk in clinics. They have tried everything they can think of, and they have not been able to. Do this, they haven't been able to get a family doctor. What gets somebody to the point where they need to put an ad in the paper so obviously, everybody wants to know more about this story. Well, our Raji Sohal had a chance to catch up with the woman who placed that ad, and here's their conversation
0: uh, Our family doctor we had a wonderful fa- family doctor who uh, Dr. Cox, who specialized in geriatric patients um And um, Michael has had many medical issues, uh, and we were so grateful to get him. And we had him for about 15 years, and he retired.
6: I see. And how hard has it been to get a family doctor since then?
0: It's been impossible. Uh, I have spent countless hours uh, calling every possible uh, option there might be. And I would find a clinic that specialized in geriatric patients who, uh, that closed. Uh, a local one that has only um, been functioning for maybe a year or two years uh, closed. Uh, newspapers reported that they had difficulties um, maintaining the facility particularly. Um, so there were special options that withdrew from the market. Um, and I resorted to walk-in clinics. I never did find a walk-in clinic between Christmas and now uh, that I could, I could get into. Um, I would dial for hours uh, starting at uh, quarter to nine when they opened at nine. And uh, the, I would finally get a voicemail saying they were full for the day and they wouldn't take uh, a wait list.
6: Wow. And you tried that daily since Christmas?
0: Um, Sometimes I'd give up for a week and then someone would give me the name of another clinic they'd found that was hopeful and I would try the next new clinic. Uh, But that's, I've been intermittently trying since Christmas. How has that left you feeling? Well, my voice just talking about it is uh, on edge. Um, Michael, is showing symptoms. He's a just a wonderful 82 year old best friend. He has uh, new symptoms that look like they are related to prostate and bladder. And uh, um, he's been on the list for months now to see a specialist. And uh, we weren't even able to get the ultrasound Um, we were able to get the blood test, but not the ultrasound that would uh, probably speed up a trip to the uh, urologist. So uh, it's, it's a day at a time. I'm terrified. Um, um, That almost seems like a joke. We can't even get to see a doctor and
1: Oh boy, that is our uh, Raji Sohal's conversation with Janet Nadine Mort now. Uh, Janet is the person who placed the ad in the Times colonist newspaper on the weekend, talking about how desperate she and her husband are to find a family doctor to renew her elderly husband's prescription medications. Raji's is with us now. Raji, I tell you that felt like a knife like that just uh, my heart goes out to them.
6: Oh, It really does. You know, the advert itself, you look at this ad and it doesn't seem real. Somebody, you know, urgently making this plea to find a family doctor in the local paper. I just can't believe that it's come to this. But you heard Nadine say there she's been trying everything else within her power. She has been calling uh, the local walk-in clinics. try to speak to someone who can help her, try to get her an appointment. She's doing what she can, what she knows is within her power, and still no luck finding a family doctor. And it's just so heartbreaking to hear.
1: You know, what gets me about this too, and I was talking about that with Rob Shaw, is that I'm sure she's told her story to many people that she has called, right? Many clinics. I'm sure she's talked to a lot of people. And It's so disappointing to think that somebody and the many people that she spoke to didn't, wasn't also impacted by what she said and said, you know what, we're going to help you out with this. We're going to find a way to do this
6: and people have been trying to help her so she actually has a good community around her she's not isolated she has told people in her community and they've made recommendations to her including oh try this number try that walking clinic have you tried this one and so she's doing all that she's trying to you know run she through these have hoops to, though. yeah and it's not working out
1: Also, that's so much work. You're talking about people who are elderly, who are feeling probably a little insecure about their health, the number of health conditions that she listed off there too. And we are, as you put it, making them jump through hoops to get medical care. Like it seems so wrong.
6: Yeah. And we know absolutely everybody is deserving of healthcare. Everyone deserves a family doctor in BC. But, you know, I'm anticipating a response from the Ministry of Health today. And I just want to caution listeners, because if they start to hear spin that, oh, this couple, uh, maybe they're too elderly, maybe they don't know how to call a walk-in clinic and that kind of thing. I say, just exercise some caution and don't be fooled there because this couple has put in the work. And uh, Janet herself, she's a 2020 recipient of the Order of BC. She's had a career as a teacher, a principal, a superintendent. She's got her PhD in language. She is trying with all the resources available to find a family doctor. She, she's not been foolish about this at all.
1: No, and honestly, that's uh, she shouldn't have to try that hard. She shouldn't have to be that hard for someone to get care the way her husband needs care. So uh, now I assume, Raji, that with all the attention this story is going to get, and it's going to get a lot of attention, that somebody will come forward and they will find a doctor. Is, Is she feeling that this might, this ad might work?
6: To be honest, Simi, I don't think she's feeling hopeful just yet. Uh, She's hoping that uh, this, uh, her first interview after coming out about this story, will bring about some more light on this situation, help her, but also help others. Because we know that this is an astoundingly big problem for the province, for many, many other people, too.
1: It certainly is. Listen, thank you so much for that.
6: Thanks, Simi.